There is perhaps no more intensive task one can choose to undertake than the raising of children. For parents, children are their posterity, with the potential to extend their destiny beyond their natural lifespan. Within the larger community, a child's maturation, choices made, and the paths taken reflect the culture of the people who influence the child along the way, causing every member of the community to play some part in the child's development. Each generation builds from what was inherited from the previous one, and one cannot assess a generation's direction, accomplishments, or failures apart from those of the previous generations. In the course of natural life, the inexorable passage of time makes this progression haphazard. For most families and communities, the connection between generations is unintentional. In the body of Christ, however, we are all sons of God. We come into the family of God through birth. Our initial stage is that of newborn children. As in natural families, there is an anticipated growth through various stages, resulting in one becoming mature. We start as children whose growth and maturity is determined and stewarded by the Head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has organized his body as a multi-generational family. The foundation of this family is the father-son relationship, established by God as father and as son, and cultivated intentionally through spiritual fathers. The complete picture of this family is that of a holy nation that exists as one functioning body under Christ's headship that displays the kingdom of God in the earth. The book My Father, My Father by Sam and Nicholas Solon addresses this order, which Scripture refers to as the house of God, in substantial detail. The house of God refers to the family of God, which exists both in heaven and on earth. As in the case of every family, the house of God has a unique culture. However, unlike natural human families, God's family derives its culture from God himself. It is, therefore, a heavenly culture in the earth. Though God's family comprises people from every nation, race, and background, His intent is that every person has a unique destiny through which he or she can display some fact about God's character. The goal is to put on display that aspect of God's character that he or she was put on earth to represent as a son of God, irrespective of whether that person is male or female. Each individual is also part of the body of Christ that as a whole is meant to display the fullness of God's personhood in the earth as a corporate son. What ties the individual to the corporate, making the many one, is a culture that exists only in the body of Christ. Each believer's growth, from infancy to a functionally mature son of God, is a clear and defined process. As the education of a child exposes him or her to fundamental principles of thought and action consistent with the family's culture and the goals of the greater society, so also the children of God must be exposed to the fundamental elements of the culture of heaven and the greater structure of a holy nation. The elementary doctrines are the building blocks of this culture, meant to be cultivated in the life of every believer. From infancy to maturity, these principles unfold with greater and greater complexity throughout the believer's life. The result is a unified corpus, with many parts, that is capable of presenting a standard of righteousness in the earth. Just as the individual believer must mature over time to more completely represent the Father, so too the corporate son has been maturing through the many epochs of human history, moving closer to the full revelation of the kingdom of God in the earth. The elementary doctrines are the foundation for a culture that brings about these kinds of maturity, one that is consistent with the culture of heaven. For the individual, the elementary doctrines lay a foundation for change. When one first chooses to follow Christ, that person begins a life of change, 
the constant changing of his or her nature, the changing of one's position within the body as he or she matures, and the changing expression of one's destiny towards its complete expression. Repentance from Acts that Lead to Death, Chapter 1, is the first step in being born again of the Spirit and is also the basis for being established in the Spirit as a Son of God, regardless of gender, race, or any other physical status. Faith towards God, Chapter 2, is the basis of a way of life that is consistent with belief and open to the economy of the Spirit to accomplish the things of God in the earth. Baptisms, Chapter 3, are the procedures, both symbolic and experiential, that establish one's position in the body of Christ with gifts and a calling. The laying on of hands, Chapter 4, is the familial guidance one receives as he or she matures and changes position within the body commensurate with that maturity ultimately being confirmed and released to act with authority, both within the body of Christ and the world. The principle of the resurrection of the dead, chapter 5, allows for the assemblage into the corporate body, resulting in the release of one's destiny and a change in the individual from a perspective based in the natural to one that is informed by the Spirit. Eternal Judgment, chapter 6, is a further change in the expression of one's destiny as the position of the qualified judge is reserved only for the mature. Such judgments represent the stewardship of his house, affecting both mature and immature believers. These teachings should be a continual presence in the believer's daily life. They should provide a place of reference and at times reassurance that what the believer experiences is part of the walk with Christ and his unfailing desire to bring each person to maturity. These same teachings lay the foundation of a culture that identifies the functioning body of Christ in the earth. Repentance and the renewing of the mind is the foundation for receiving revelation and changing with the seasons over time. It is the basis by which the entire body matures in its own destiny throughout the history of humankind. Faith toward God is the foundation for a way of life that expresses the personhood of God in the earth, which is the continued work of Jesus Christ, the Son. The different baptisms are the mechanisms that give each part of the body a complete destiny and refinement towards that destiny yet allows each individual to take part in the complete revealing of God the Father in the earth. The laying on of hands knits the body together, giving function and support to each part. The principle of the resurrection is the basis upon which the Spirit of Christ continues to operate in the earth through the assemblage of the sons of God. And finally, eternal judgment is the result of a unified and mature corporate son being present in the earth, having established the standard of righteousness by which all things may be judged in the taint of sin expunged from creation. There's no reason that any believer should remain perpetually an infant. Each person is meant to grow through specific stages of maturity. As sons of God, this process does not depend merely on the passage of time. Rather, this process depends upon the working of these principles throughout one's life as a believer. They represent both means for and the indications of reaching maturity. The Foundation of Maturity Therefore let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundations of repentance from acts that lead to death, and of faith in God, instructions about baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we'll do so. That's Hebrews 6, 1-3. The basic Christian message that frames most believers' understanding of Scripture is that one must be saved from the consequences of sin and that he may go to heaven when he dies, or, conversely, that he may avoid hell. 
Apart from the initial message of salvation from sin, the believer's instruction typically focuses on the nature of good works, often emphasizing evangelism. The time between the person's salvation and death is meant for doing good works, the highest of which is to bring others to Christ, repeating the cycle. This modern Christian message does not require a significant understanding of the scriptures, nor does it require that the person who is saved become a mature son of God. The common church experience requires only basic familiarity with the particular doctrinal emphasis of the church or denomination to which the believer is attached. For example, traditional evangelicals favor topics related to salvation, evangelism, and good works as proof that they have had a born-again experience. Those with a Pentecostal or charismatic background tend to emphasize the topics of faith, money, power, and generally living the best version of one's life and historic denominations ascribe particular importance to traditional church practices and being able to trace their roots back to important historical figures or events. In each case, religious institutions and denominational groups have chosen easily consumable, narrow focuses at the expense of the depth of scriptural understanding necessary to build a foundation for wisdom and their leadership and maturity among their people. Crises tend to expose the limitations of such selective emphasis. National or international calamities inspire predictable responses. Those who emphasize going to heaven immediately construe such events according to their anticipation of the end of the age and being raptured away. They'll often make predictions around these topics, and they are routinely ridiculed in the media for their folly. Others, who emphasize good works, have generally relegated themselves to responding to disasters materially. They mobilize their resources by sending teams of relief workers into distressed areas to practice and show the caring nature of their evangelism. But their impact is no different than the relief efforts conducted by secular groups. Whether they focus on escape or merely coping with the aftermath of disasters, the religious leaders' immaturity regarding their understanding of Scripture, beyond their own narrow imperatives, is made evident by their responses to these kinds of challenges. The typical manner in which these groups respond to crises in individual believers' lives reveals the same shallow understanding. Usually they'll offer one of two explanations. The event is construed as either Satan's attack against the individual, either being provoked by efforts to spread the gospel or simply as an attempt to hinder the person's walk of faith, or as God's displeasure with the person's behavior. When they conclude that the person has offended God, the believer is encouraged to discover the offending condition and remedy it. When a crisis cannot easily be understood in terms of any moral failing or such things as unfaithfulness and tithing or church attendance, there is an assumption as to the person's hidden motive or behaviors. The believer is blamed for any sufferings that she must endure. These responses do not offer the believer any explanation for the crisis based upon the solid foundation of Scripture, nor do they help the person understand the opportunities for growth and change inherent in these times of suffering. Institutional religious models are based on the need of the institution to survive, regardless of the cost to the individual believer. Therefore, the messages are simple basic and uncomplicated, easily consumed and consensus-building, so that the institution will survive by its appeal to the largest possible constituency. These messages present the ways of God as whimsical and unknowable, and God himself may seem arbitrary and capricious. These people's continued unfamiliarity with God serves the institution's investments in their limited topical emphasis. The believer is not provided with training or an understanding of divine order by which he may consistently and accurately determine the will of God in any situation confronted in the world or in his life personally. Often, believers will come to the place of questioning the doctrines, practices, and emphasis of religious institution 
and often they are assured that the limitations that they have discerned mark the furthest extent of truth available to human beings. People should not be dissuaded from their search for truth by the dissatisfaction with the answers that they receive from institutional and denominational leaders. The leaders are trying to hold on to authority rooted in the institution, while the people are searching for a greater spirituality. The religious world is in deep internal conflict, and the inward focus increasingly leads to outward irrelevance to society, which increasingly operates apart from spiritual restraints. The lack of maturity in both the leaders and the people has caused this dilemma. Even in questioning the models that they have left, many believers lack the foundation to ask the right questions. Their search for truth may be haphazard and unfocused. The solution is to build the foundation intended for every believer by which each person matures as a son of God. The underlying cause of this immaturity is the systematic neglect of the scriptures, particularly those regarding the foundations for maturity described in Hebrews 6, 1 and 2. Believers, including leaders, are generally unfamiliar with these elementary doctrines. The Elementary Doctrines The author of the book of Hebrews identifies six elementary doctrines that are the required foundation for the life of every believer. Repentance from acts that lead to death and faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. The study and understanding of these doctrines lay the foundation of a believer's education that is required before one can, as the writer of Hebrews says, go on to maturity. One must exercise much care to study and understand these doctrines. They form the basis of understanding of Scripture and Revelation. A believer should not expect to exhibit serious understanding, wisdom, and insight into the nature of God without having first developed the foundation for maturity by studying and employing the elementary doctrines. In a similar way, a child does not start his educational career by reading the works of Shakespeare, Milton, and Tolstoy. The elementary doctrines are analogous to a child learning the lessons taught in elementary school, designed to expose children to the basic skills by which they can communicate, interpret, and understand information from the very basic application of these skills to the increasingly complex. The nature of the society in which a child grows up determines the basic skills that he or she must develop to engage life within that culture as an adult. These are called elementary doctrines because they form the substantial basis of a foundational education in the scriptures, not because they are simple and easily grasped. Beyond merely understanding these principles, the believer will experience challenges that allow him or her to implement the truth of these principles and bring light and wisdom to various circumstances. The Holy Spirit will reveal the mind of the Lord through these challenges. As the believer grows, circumstances will take on greater complexities to permit deeper understandings of these principles. The Order of Maturity Just as a person starts life as a small child and progresses through the distinct stages to a mature adult capable of functioning in society, a son of God begins as one who is newly born again and progresses to being able to represent the interests of God the Father. The designation of Son of God in Scripture not only has specific meaning regarding one's positioning in the will of God, it also has multiple distinct usages that denote one's level of maturity. To be a Son of God, one begins with the born-again experience by which one is repositioned in Christ and enabled to be led by the Spirit. Everyone who is born again has been given the power to become sons of God. Beyond this inceptive rebirth, there are various distinct usages of terms meaning son in Scripture that acknowledge the progression from a newborn to a mature son who represents his or her father. 
A newborn believer is referred to by the term napios, which refers to a son newly born into the family. However, when that son grows up and is competent to represent the interests of his father as a fully mature son, the designation huios is used appropriately to distinguish the fully mature son from the newborn infant. Between the newborn and the fully mature son are other distinct specific stages of sonship, each referencing a growing level of maturity through which the believer must progress. Maturity is defined by specific aspects of knowledge, understanding, and functionality in increasing levels of complexity and responsibility. Regarding their maturity, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ Jesus and Him crucified. He explained, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it, and indeed you are still not ready. Paul equated knowing nothing but Christ and Him crucified as milk for infants. He also equated their state of being infantile with them being worldly or carnal. Carnality means being motivated by the desires of the flesh and not the spirit, causing one to be unable to make common and ordinary distinctions consistent with the life of a mature believer. From Paul's assessment of the Corinthians, simply knowing Christ and Him crucified does not mean that a believer is mature. He made it clear that without more, one is carnal and immature. This highlights the need for maturity as a prerequisite for receiving and understanding the wisdom that comes from God. Paul taught that there is a message of wisdom, revealed by the Holy Spirit. Such wisdom, he wrote, can be given only to the mature. In 1 Corinthians 2, 6-7, it says, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. It's not the message of wisdom that makes believers mature, but rather it's the foundational teachings and understanding that enable them to hear the message of wisdom. The goal is that every believer is able to represent the Father as a mature Son of God. However, these concepts of maturity are largely absent from the thinking of believers today. The Training of Believers in Christ Even when believers select amongst the wide variety of teachers and publicized Christian materials, their learning is haphazard and without the appropriate structure to produce maturity. Having specific topical knowledge but lacking an overarching foundation for wisdom is a commonly reoccurring characteristic of believers that shows the result of this unstructured education. The narrow emphasis on being saved and preparing to go to heaven has produced a people who are generally unable to engage the world around them. The role of the Christian in society is seen as one who proselytes by offering a way of escape out of the troubles of the present world. And this limited Christian perspective de-emphasizes the need for believers to meaningfully engage in society. Howbeit, the elementary doctrines are a foundation upon which the entire way of viewing reality is structured. The employment of the elementary doctrines will result in growing up from a newborn to becoming mature in Christ, leading one to a greater understanding of the events in the world and in one's personal life. These are not a set of distinct doctrines relating to group membership. They are the pillars that support a distinctive way of life that enables the believer to represent God the Father and the reality of a transformed life.